LeadSquared is a cutting-edge CRM platform for enrollment management. With LeadSquared, you will deliver a seamless student experience, streamline admissions processes, lower costs, and increase retention. Schedule a demo at LeadSquared.com. Welcome back, everybody. It's your time to add up on the Edup Experience podcast, where we make education your business. Um, I want to first say to everybody who's listening, because this episode will come out fairly soon, that Elvin and I are attending Elusian Live in Denver, Colorado, April 10th through 13th. And we're going to be recording live at the conference with Elusian users, um, higher ed influencers, and so on at the conference live. It's actually the first time Elvin and I will meet in the United States, the first time we ever met. Um, of course, we're founders and partners of this podcast that we had never met in person for the first two years that we ran this podcast, but we met in Doha for the first time in Doha, Qatar, when we were at uh, WISE in December. So this is our first States meeting and who meets in Doha for the first time, right? So we're pretty excited about seeing each other in the States. Uh, come out to Lucien live um, and see us and maybe you get on and sit down and have a chat with us. Um, somebody that is always ready to chat with us is my guest co-host today. You've heard her uh, before because she's been a guest on this podcast before. Her name is Dr. Emily Barnes, and she is provost of Clear University. Emily, how are you? I'm doing well. Joe, how about yourself? Oh, you know, it's another day in paradise, Emily. Um, how is, I mean, to be a provost must be pure paradise. So how are you doing every day? You know, it's a very dynamic role, but, uh, you know, I try to keep it lively and in the have as much fun as possible during the day. So, and help people get to where they want to go in life. I love it. I love it. See, you're so good. You're just so good, Emily. And we've gotten to know each other a lot better since you've been a guest on the podcast. And I'd like to say you are a trailblazer um, and uh, doing some amazing things at your university. Um, I always like to bring trailblazers together. So I'm glad you're co-hosting today because we have a trailblazer on this podcast as a guest. Sure and I was like, you know, how should I introduce him? I don't know what, I was looking through my sound effects. I'm like, I don't know what I have here. And then I found one and it's, it's per, I felt it was perfect. Here he is. Um, ladies and gentlemen, his name is Dr. Mark Lombardi and he's president at Maryville University. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's the yeah <laughs> button. Mark, what's going on? How are you doing? Yeah. Good, how are you? Good, very good. <laughs> uh, if I can get a smile or a laugh at the beginning of this thing, then it's bound to go well. Um, Mark, uh, you know, I think if you're in this industry, you've heard of Maryville University, but you know, higher ed, there's always varying degrees of, of knowledge. Maybe some people haven't heard of Maryville University, uh, but for whether we have or we haven't, level set for us. What do you guys do at Maryville and how do you do it? Great. Well, we're a comprehensive university, actually celebrating our 150th year. We're also the third fastest growing private university in the United States, well over 10,000 students. And comprehensive meaning undergraduate, graduate degrees, doctoral degrees. So we have all of that. I think uh, what your listeners need to know is we've been at the forefront really of the digital transformation of higher ed. And we move fast, nimble. We operate more like a startup really than a university. Uh, we. Uh, we seize initiatives, whether it's uh, in the digital transformation space, one-to-one -one space, AI, data analytics, what have you, and apply those to the higher ed model. And, and that's been probably one of the main reasons for our success. In addition, um, a faculty that has really embraced the digital revolution, and that's pretty rare in, in education these days. So we're very, very proud of their leadership. It's one of the reasons why during the pandemic, we were able to transition into the online space pretty seamlessly with a couple of bumps here and there, but we were able to do it very effectively on that platform that we had built. So it's a dynamic university with a lot going on, a lot of, uh, a lot of change and a lot of forward momentum and, uh, and it's exciting. How do you become, all right, so give us the formula without giving us the secret sauce, of course. Um, how do you become the third fastest growing private university in the U.S.? What, what do you attribute that success to, if you could pick out a couple of things? 
Well, I think uh, we've, we've always had a really strong nursing program uh, here uh, for many, many years. And so when we made the decision several years ago to move into the online space, we said, look, if we can do it in nursing at a very high quality, and as you know, in the nursing profession, there's an external validation of your education. You know, it's the pass rate, board rate, and, and placement rate, and so forth. So we knew if we could do online in a high quality uh, way with our nursing program, we could do it with anything. And our nursing faculty did an outstanding job of converting some of our undergraduate and master's level MSN programs. And those took off and the growth there was huge. And that brought everyone else to the table. So I think one of the secret sauces is we don't, we're not, we're not a university that gets everybody together and we all have to agree on something. In fact, consensus is sort of like true love. It really doesn't exist. We might try to reach it, but we'll never get there. Uh, and so that's coming from a guy who's been divorced twice. That's why I, <laughs> I like that. Yikes! <laughs> but we we but when we did it there, uh, faculty and others realized that it could be done in other fields, and that that lit a fire, and and that combined with what what I think, and and I just want to say this, you know. 30, 40, 50 years ago, curb appeal meant you drove onto a campus or up to a house and you liked the look of it and you liked the feel of it. Here's what curb appeal means to an 18-year-old today. When they go into a space, uh, outdoor, indoor, they look at their phone. Can they still download things from Netflix? Can, is, is their phone connected? Is they, can they communicate? We invested uh, several million dollars a few years ago in creating what is still one of the top 10% wired connected campuses in the United States. So students can access everything indoors, outdoors. The entire campus is a classroom. It's so well connected. We have about 100 to 200 students that petition to stay in the residence halls over the uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas holidays, because they don't want to go home because the internet's too slow at their folks' house. Hey, kids, it's the internet. <laughs> That's right. So we, we, there are a lot of other things, of course, but we really invested in the technology where the students are at, not where old people like me are, but where they're at. And that's made a big difference, not only in the living of on campus, but the learning environment on campus. I, what you said there, I, I get excited. I, I get a little giddy because I'm, I go, let's just think about that for a second. Curb appeal for an 18 year old and you walk onto a campus for a visit and your internet doesn't work. Goodbye student. I mean, you think about that, that power of that statement that you just made, Mark. And it's like, it's a mind, it's so simple yet mind-blowing. You think about what deters a student from selecting your college and it literally could be, oh, they have bad internet because that's what I care about. I care about my social profile and accessing things on my phone. I mean, it's like, boom, you know? And I'll give you another example of this from out of a mistake we made. We, we, we purchased a, uh, uh, adjacent hotel and we turn it into a residence hall and it's been successful when we first put in a wireless nodes okay for for internet and so forth what did we do uh, you know I say this generationally but what did people my age do when we were installing that we put them down where the plugs are down by the baseboard and of course when students come in and there's furniture and there's all stuff we found out that we looked at the students were complaining they weren't getting the connectivity they wanted in the first couple of weeks. So we looked at the numbers. We looked at it and said, that doesn't make sense. And then we had an aha moment and said, this is crazy. All those wireless nodes should be up near the ceiling where they're not obscured. So, you know, it, it, some of the simplest things when it comes to technology and being where the students are at, uh, can have a profound impact on their experience, both learning and living. And I think if, if, if you had to, and again, it's not one variable, but if you had to say, why are we leading in a digital transformative way as far as without, in terms of other universities, it's because we really have put ourselves in the student's head in terms of what, how do they live and what do they want? Because their experience and their expectation is 10 times different than mine when I was in college umpteen million years ago. Well, Emily, what do you think about all this? By the way, I'm sorry I'm monopolizing here. I you know, tend to do that from time to time. So come on in and take over. So Maryville University is where I earned my doctorate. So they are my alma mater, my mother, 
right? And um, I've always loved Maryville University. I had a great experience um, myself. Um, but just so you know, Mark, yes. your institution produces uh, provost and interim presidents um, here at the Cleary. So I think, you know, I, I love the education. It was, uh, I can't tell you as far as the, uh, the faculty and um, what I was able to gather, I think the relevancy was the, the, the biggest piece as far as preparing me for, um, for this role that I have and then um, positioning me perfectly for, I, I became interim president right before the pandemic hit. And I was um, interim president for about 16 months before we found um, um, Alan Drimmer, who's the president at Cleary now. But um, it was, I think even, even the, the relationship building that happens in the programs and, um, just for the record, Emily, not to interrupt you, but I did not know that before I asked you to come co-host. Just for the record, Mark, this wasn't a plant. This was just mm -hmm. circumstance. It's awesome. Well, it, it, that's great. And and that you made my day because uh, the only outcome that matters is when students uh, believe that they not only got a great education, but they can use it in their career and in their uh, in their lives. Uh, to me, that's, that's the only measure of success. So uh, thank you. And that's great. Yeah. And of course, you'll you'll be hearing from our alumni office in the next five minutes. Mm -hmm. Now, right for <laughs> I love it. Preparing my donation now, sir. No, <laughs> absolutely. So um, again, it's it's so nice to talk to you. I'm just so happy that you're here, um, and uh, to get your insights on this on this topic is very valuable. And while you're talking, I'm getting some inspiration. You know, you talked about the campus experience and about this idea of you know we talked about curb appeal, but also with you know, what, what's their relationship to the university today? And what I'm hearing is, you know, I'm, I'm wondering what it is that you have within you or something experiences that you've had or perspective perhaps that has given you this, this, this um, priority, you know, what is it about yourself that makes this a critical priority for you as, as a president? Uh, well, that's a that's a great question, really. And I, I don't um, I'll, I'll give you the Reader's Digest version. I grew up in the East Coast in the shadow of the Ivy League, shall we say. And um, I was one of those high school students that preferred to uh, kind of have fun and play sports and drink beer and and and, and didn't give academics a hefty uh, uh, investiture. Cheers. <laughs> and uh and as a result, I was I was categorized uh, by the high school teachers or by others as, you know, well, not a serious student. And so when I always make the joke that uh, our guidance counselor had five brochures and 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 she she had very short arms. The first one was in a very Catholic neighborhood. The first one was Notre Dame. The second one was Boston College. Then it was the uh, University of Rhode Island where I grew up, then the community college. And if she could reach her arm further than that, it meant, you know, you needed to you needed to get a job and 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 join a union. And and um, and they had all of us categorized, me included. And so as I pursued my education and including a Ph.D. in political science and started teaching, I realized that access and opportunity was the fundamental missing element of higher ed. Higher ed is elitist. There's, there's no other way to say it. I mean, when you when you rank order universities based on who how many people you don't let in, you're elitist, pure and simple. And I thought that that was wrong, fundamentally wrong, fundamentally um, crazy when you talk about access and opportunity for people of color and women and so many others. And so I vowed that in education, I wanted to be a force of shifting that paradigm. And what what the digital transformative age, and obviously we can go back to the time of the the advent of computers in the 80s, but personal computers, but really in the last 15, 20 years, we are in a digital world rapidly accelerating. And these tools can empower not just a select group of students, but can empower millions. They can level the te playing field uh, technologically between students of various socioeconomic uh, status, and they can finally do what I believe is essential, is personalizing education. No more warehouse education. Education should be built around the student, not the other way around. And, and so for me, the digital tools are essential, whether it's AI, data analytics, the connectivity we've been talking about. Those things are essential to democratize knowledge and education, expand opportunity. 
uh, because th that's the only way we're going to solve the problems in this world. I mean, there are tons of problems. We need m the most talent we can get our hands on to work on them. I don't know about you, but I, rather than 500 scientists trying to find a cure for cancer, I want 5 million scientists working on that problem at any given time. And and and, and you can extrapolate that, be that beyond. So it's it's been a passion of mine for a long, long time. And to be honest, this is this university uh, has been the one that is the best was the is the best positioned to help revolutionize higher ed. And, and so I couldn't be more proud of the work of the people around me who are doing such great things. Wow. So I'm just going to give you a quote that I heard because we should all write this down. But you said I vowed that I would be a force to shift a paradigm. Those are powerful words. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely. And for me, I, you know, you're talking about empowering millions and leveling the playing field. And I, I agree with you completely that technology does, does have these resources. Um, and I'm wondering, you know, what are these components as far as personalizing education and providing these opportunities? What are some critical components that you may be willing to share or sure. that you can shed light on? Well, we've got we, we've got in place now the tools to basically develop uh, personalized learning profiles of every student. And I'm not talking about what I consider crap, which are standardized test scores and GPAs and all that other garbage. I'm talking about uh, some outstanding uh, research that's been done over the last 20 or 30 years about how students learn or how everyone learns brain research and brain theory and brain development, etc. And out of that have come a set of tools that literally we can develop a learning profile of each student before they arrive, okay, when they're going through the admission process, and then share that profile with the student. See, you know, we're not approaching this like the way uh, some of these behemoths do is gather data about you in order to monetize it and then sell you things. We're talking about utilizing these profiles to empower students. So we can sit down with a student and say, yeah, you believe that you struggle at math and you have a problem with math or that you can never learn math. A lot of students have that. But in reality, your learning style is best suited for this. So if we if we pitch the instruction of math to that particular learning style, you can learn math and you can learn science. And so what we're trying to do is take what students, what we learn about students as they matriculate, empower them with that knowledge, and then flip the pedagogy from instead of faculty centric, I'm going to teach this way and you all better learn it or not, we're going to flip it to a student centric model. That's what we call the active learning ecosystem. I would be a liar if I said we've done it perfectly across the board, we're, we're still working on its, its complete evolution. But that's been one of the things that we've really been proud of and our faculty have embraced. We've literally 94% of our faculty have gone through faculty development to take this active learning ecosystem approach and, and, and it's working. And I'm very proud of that. So personalized learning means you start with the student. You don't start with the subject matter. You don't start with the pedagogy or the faculty. You start with the student and build out from there. Yeah, no, that's uh, that's fantastic insight. And I'm wondering too, just to, just to ask you a little bit more, you know, you um, serve many students. Um, Maryville University has extensive programming and you have all types of students. We talk about the curb appeal for an 18 year old. And we talk about the online experience as far as providing this personalized approach. So when it comes to your adult populations and your professional populations, um, how does that convey in the digital space? Or how do you do that personalization um, or what's your vision for that, for um, maybe the more non-traditional or, or graduate students? In the online I'm glad, I'm, let me just interrupt and say that I'm really glad that you asked that question that I gave you, Emily, because it's a good one. <laughs> uh, in the online space, it's different. It's slightly different because online students in general have some different motivating factors at play. A lot of them are trying to skill up for a particular career or job. It's it, they tend to have a more, and it's a good thing. They they have a more direct or utilitarian uh, goals goal structure there, but online learning allows us to do the same thing: gather data analytics about our students to then empower the learning uh, approach and empower them in that environment. Um, it's a different data collection process, but it's the same principle at play. 
Um, you know, and, and what I'm most excited about is we're in the process now of, 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 uh, of incorporating a more sophisticated level of artificial intelligence with this data analytics powered uh, aspect uh, that we think uh, we're going to be able to take this to the next level in really just the next 12 to 18 months. So I think it's the future of learning. I think it's the future of all learning. And the, and the key factor here, and I, I can't emphasize enough, it's not gathering data about students to use use it to sell them things the way Amazon and others do. It's about gathering data about their learning and empowering them with that knowledge. I mean, you can't, you, it's, it's a, you know, it is an amazing thing to see when a student who thinks that they, they can't learn certain things and so they avoid them to then help them understand that, no, you can learn this. It's just the instruction needs to change and approach needs to change. And when it does, and they're empowered and they see success in that, it's, it's just wonderful to see that. It's, it's, it's the modern definition of the old uh, light bulb going off and mm -hmm. what it means. And, and so, so again, using data, using <laughs> analytics, uh, using AI, using uh, 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 hilarious sound effects—all those things are part of the <laughs> part of the learning process. Speaking of which, um, Mark, I need to know if you're—are you open to playing a game with us today? It's a little bit of a surprise, but I know you can. I know you can do it. Well, where I grew up, if you're talking about shooting craps or playing roulette, sure, I'm open to games. Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, there is no money here at the Ed of Experience podcast, but we're going to play it. That's my transition music. Uh, Emily, you're playing too. Uh, I'm ready. You come on the podcast and not play. This is a, a little game I like to call Higher Ed Word Association. So I'm going to give you a phrase, word or phrase, Higher ed, and I pick these, I've got like a bank of words and I run them randomly so that I can shoot them over to you. And you got to give me the first thoughts that come into your mind. You guys ready? Okay. Um, Emily, um, I, I feel like you got to go first mm -hmm. because you're the guest co-host and that gives my guest more time to prepare. Yeah. <laughs> um, all right, here we go. You ready, Emily? I am ready. Prior learning assessment. Credit accrual. Mark, Sorry. prior learning assessment. An old model for something that we need. Ooh, we're going to touch it. We got to talk about that. Okay, here we go. Number two, strategic planning. Community. Short, sweet, goal-oriented. God, you guys are good. I have to say that uh, this is why I know you're digital digital kind of disruptors and people because um truly when i have the true academics on they never give me short answers it's like these nice long answers um but either way you can do whatever you want um okay. emily degree yeah. value uh largely misunderstood mm, mark career outcome mm -hmm. okay emily yes innovation Ooh, I think that um, I'll give a little slightly longer one this time. Bring uh, out the provost, bring it out. Bring it out. So I call it the innovator's cadence because there is a, uh, especially for some of us smaller universities, you have to pace yourselves. There is maintaining operations and uh, making sure that what we're doing today is successful and is, is going well. And then there is the innovation that comes in patterns and waves as it can be accommodated, um, necessary. Both are necessary. Both are critical. And um, but from my perspective, that's that's where we are now. So that's going to be my answer. Because as you try to innovate, it's it's the balance of. I call it the cadence. Mm, Mark, innovation, constant and relentless. Mm -hmm. Ooh, relentless is a good word. Okay, you guys, want one more? One more last one? Or are you are you fed up with uh, my higher ed word association? I like it. Mark, do you like it? Yeah, it's fun. I like it. Yeah. Educational technology, Emily. Oh, I, I think that I like what Mark said before, uh, which is constant and relentless. <laughs> Mark. And, and opportunistic. I like it. it uh, student centric. That's mm -hmm. all that matters when it comes to educational technology. 
There you have another episode of Higher Ed Word Association with your players today, Emily Barnes, Mark Lombardi. Good job, guys. Uh, Mark, I, I listened to your podcast, by the way, Disruptor in Chief, uh, that you oh. have at Maryville. Um, I, uh, uh, you're good on the microphone, by the way. So you're, I think you're a natural podcaster. Um, one of the things you said in your, I don't know if it was your second year first uh, up on the website, and it was the first, one of the first things you said was that the single vision of using digital tools of tomorrow to revolutionize higher education was the purpose and the, the, the entire point of the podcast and a point of how you operate. Talk to me about that because it was a very intentional way you said it, the, the way the words were organized and the way you said it. Is this a mantra of yours? Is it a part of the vision of the university? Tell me, tell me why that phrase is so important. Oh, yeah, I think it's a very important part of, of the vision and uh, an important element of everything we do. You know, every industry, it doesn't matter what it is, and I apologize to those of you listening, but education is a business because people pay us money mm -hmm. and they can go elsewhere. So, we, you know, there it is a business. And and in that content, it's not a business to get the stock price up. It's a business to make the world better by educating people. Right. But, that's right. And And so... Those, those, that approach is very, very, very prescriptive and very uh, central to who we are because every business is behind the times, okay? What I mean by that is whether it's the newspaper business or, or, or manufacturing industries, car manufacturers, et cetera, the, and it's not, a, it's not a human frailty. It's just that they're always operating with a model that's either 10, 20, or in some cases 50 or 100 years old. We don't, we live in a world of rapid digitization. You cannot measure evolution and change in this century in terms of years. We measure it really in weeks and months. And for that reason, you have to be relentlessly innovative and you have to be focused on the tools of tomorrow because the tools we have today will become antiquated in a matter of months. I mean, it's fascinating to me at every university that, that I've been associated with or known or whatever that that so many people, good people, really knowledgeable people, want to sit on what they know and do, use the tools they've, they've been using for 20 years and not realizing that the students that are coming to them are radically different than the students that came to them 20 years ago. I remember at one point we were doing some uh, amazing things here and a, and a, a now retired faculty member said, I didn't sign up for this 30 years ago. And I, he's a friend of mine and I was able to say to him, look, uh, I'll call him Joe. Look, Joe, uh, you know, it's no, not me, but it could be different. Joe. Nobody signed up for anything today, 30 years ago, because nobody could envision uh, tablets and smartphones and on and on. So it's it sort of it, it reflects the fact that the cultural mindset of higher ed has to shift, not just the digital tools, not just all these things we've been talking about, but the mindset around change and innovation and the world we're in today. You know, the students that are coming to Maryville right now pretty much do not remember a time where they didn't have a tablet and a smartphone and they weren't connected to the world around them. Think about that in terms of the difference between that those young people and their experience and, and the experience I had growing up in the 60s and 70s, for example. I mean, it's, it's, it's not just night and day. There's a universal uh, uh, distance there. And, and, and so we've got to We've got to always be thinking of the next set of tools and always be working to implement them. 100%. I'm glad you agree, Emily. Um, yeah. Well said. I, I agree 100%. Um, <laughs> what do you think about that, Emily? Because you're doing that work right now. Well, let me Lead Squared isn't only an enrollment CRM. It's a technology that will allow you to optimize your entire front-end student lifecycle by providing decision makers with real-time customizable dashboards. Forecasting, measuring, and optimizing for key activities will increase retention and revenue, and Lead Squared will lower technology costs simultaneously. Not only can Lead Squared align with existing admissions processes, but the technology will also help you innovate beyond what you thought was possible. The ability to access data on your phone will keep you connected, and when you add in the world-class customer service, 
Lead Squared transcends being a technology. It's an experience. Check them out at leadsquared.com. Let me tell you, so we're really, you know, I want to know more, um, I think, from Mark, because I, I, what I've heard you say over and over um, is, you know, you talk about your faculty and how proud you are of your faculty. And you talk about digital transformation, innovation, and, you know, technology and innovation are constant and, um, you know, always presenting a new opportunity. Um, and how do you stay relevant? So with your faculty in mind, um, how have um, how have you inspired or maybe perhaps how do they inspire you as far as their willingness and the role that they play in this massive digital transformation that you're that you're creating for students? Well, when I meet with other academics like yourself, Emily, and others, uh, that that's a fundamental question, right? Because um, faculty in general are not known for as groups to be the most uh, forward change agents, right? They're, they're usually reticent, not against change, but they want it to go slow and carefully and incremental, et cetera, et cetera. And, what, and I'll, I'll just lay it out for you because I've been here 15 years. What we did were some interesting things. First of all, we identified all the innovative faculty we already had on this campus who were doing amazing things and maybe they didn't know each other and maybe people weren't aware of what they're doing and then we elevated them i call them pied pipers but they were the people that were already using ipads and already doing this and already doing that and then we had a couple of faculty who were leaders really in learning theory about how students think and learn differently and we elevated them so so we got peers who were already in this space and we basically said you know you all are doing amazing things. We want to really highlight you. Then what we did was we launched several initiatives. We didn't ask permission. We didn't form a committee to meet for five years to decide whether or not technology was good or bad, you know, and all that other. What do you really think about committees, Mark? Uh, I, <laughs> we'll say, save that one. I think there's a, I served on a ton of committees when I was a faculty member, and I can honestly say that that not one of them has anything that went on in there that uh, of any mem great memory or value for me. When I hear committee, you know, when I have a bad dream at night, it's usually that I'm stuck on the curriculum committee back in the 1990s. That's usually <laughs> my anxiety dream. But anyway, so, you know, we pilot these things and we elevate these faculty and we test things out. And we don't say to everybody, you must do this, you must do that. We say, look, a group of people are gonna be doing this, and if you're interested, come join us, come join. And you know what we found? When, when peers are doing amazing things, a lot of faculty are curious, they wanna learn more, and they wanna experiment with it with the support of their peers and their colleagues. And that's what we created. I'll, I'll, I'll give you one innovative thing we did, Emily, that I think everybody should do. You know, every university, when they do faculty workshops or whatever, what do they do? You know, you get a brown bag lunch and if you're lucky, 50 bucks and show up at this time. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. And the, and the lunch is never very good. We, we said, if we believe in faculty development, if we want faculty to use these tools, if we believe in this, we, we said, we're going to add two weeks to every faculty member's salary. And we're going to have a week in May after graduation, a week in August before school starts. And, and it's going to be devoted to faculty development with all the things that they need. And it's going to be run by our Center for Teaching and Learning, which is a faculty-led group. They embraced it. They took it on several years ago. Now it's part of the culture. And it's wow. expectation. And, and it was, uh, it's one of the best investments we ever made. And, and Emily will appreciate this. When we introduced it, we didn't ask permission. We said, we're going to do this. Mm -hmm. And the faculty, you know, everybody gets two weeks additional salary. And, and, and there were a few faculty who came to me and said, you know, this is a great idea and it's wonderful. We just wish you'd have asked us first before you did it. I said, well, mea culpa, enjoy, you know, and they embraced it. They, they've taken it on. They've built they call it one week, real week, one week perspectives week. And they have all these workshops on student learning and learning theory and personalized learning and learning technology and all kinds of stuff. And, and they do a tremendous job, uh, our Center for Teaching and Learning. All through the pandemic, they did it uh, virtually and it was very successful and effective, including, and they've even added things to it, like in January before the term starts, they have a one day thing that they do. It's amazing, so proud of them. But again, I think the key to, to, to 
pushing digital transformative change through any faculty starts with those faculty who are already in that space. That that I I think that was the key. I could I could list their names. I don't want to embarrass them, but they they really deserve the credit for leading that. I think that's absolutely wonderful. Um, similar to to Maryville, we have great faculty that are also embrace innovation and are constantly looking for new ways to be student centric. And I'm I'm wondering too, um, you know, as far as, and this is more of a infrastructure or a um, uh, you know, with your, with your advisors, you know, how, how often do you connect with your faculty or what opportunities do you provide to make sure that you are, you know, that they're able to convey changes or, you know, how, how much involvement do you, do you have in this area? Because I know you were a teacher in the past. So how do you stay connected to this space? Well, your- I, I meet with our faculty council offices every month. I have uh, myself and the VPAA, the equivalent of the provost uh, at your institution. We, you, okay. we, uh, we have a, a informal talks uh, uh, every month. In fact, we had one yesterday afternoon. Um, but I, what I, my position and what I say to faculty all the time is this: This is where we're going. This is the vision. This is the direction, and, and we've been very successful with it. We're going to continue to go in that direction. Your job is to, is, to, is to continue to push that and to tell me what you need to continue that. And, and my job is to provide that. And, and, and we've done, I think we've done a very good job of meeting those expectations. I'm not in the room micromanaging uh, the workshops or, you know, how do we do this or how to do that. I am involved in the conversations about the in, the ma- the macro infrastructure commitments so for example um we're do, we're going to be renovating and expanding our academic complex over the next couple of years so you know the i'm involved in things like okay uh let's let's get away from the idea of designated specific classrooms let's look at Look at talk to architects who can do all kinds of multi-purpose rooms where you can move walls and you know I've spent a lot of time out at Apple at Cupertino and seen the how they're able through architecture to create amazing learning spaces without them being designated and empty for you know you have a lab that's empty most of the time and it's only used so I'm involved in that level of maximizing the uh, the use of the infrastructure. Uh, but I'm not sitting in there telling a biology teacher what equipment they need or anything like that. I mean, I don't have that level of expertise. I'm a, I, I say I'm a recovering political scientist, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so that's probably my my only area of expertise when it comes to instruction. Absolutely. Well, what I hear is that you're empowering the right people um, to do what they're great at, and I think that when you provide that level of opportunity for, um, you know, the, the people in which you employ that, I mean, how it's, it's easy to get on board with that message. So, and, and obviously you're able to convey that very well. Well, and I, I've told faculty before, if I were to ever go back to the classroom and I haven't taught in over 20 years, I would need six months of intense professional development before I'd let myself go in there because my, my tool, my skill set is pretty uh, 20th century. And it's limited, and 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 it's not in keeping with with where the students are at. So I think if you if if you embrace the concept that all of us as professionals, faculty and others, have to be almost in a constant state of professional development in this digital world, if you embrace that assumption and concept, you can do anything. If you if you and conversely, if you're in this notion that well, I taught you know I lectured in 1982 and it was good mm-hmm. enough then and it should be good enough now. I'm sorry, but but you're a dinosaur, right? So, well, I think I have a, I have one more follow up before I hand it back over to Joe. But I think um, you know. By the way, you, Emily, I've been trying to jump in like every time you ask a question, and I've I've been on mute, and I'm like, why is no one recognizing me here? This, I mean, I think I run this podcast, but I can't get a word in. Well, go ahead, okay, go ahead. I, I realize to, it's my mistake. I need to ask the question, so you're just gonna. I just need you to. Give I'll me just minute. sit back and wait. And go ahead. This is important because I, I definitely hear you when you say, I didn't ask, right? Um, we didn't ask for permission. I mean, even when you talked about meeting with your faculty, my first thought was, well, did you ask the Senate if it was okay to talk to your faculty, right? Because some institutions are 
still wired that way. Um, Cleary is not, but I do know some that are. So if you are a leader, a provost or a president, or even, um, you know, it could be the, the chair of the Senate, and you are trying to find the middle ground because you went this way, which worked and is very powerful. And I think that um, necessary, absolute necessary. And then there might be some institutions that aren't ready to make that leap at all, but then there's everybody in the middle. So for someone in your role, my role, or working directly with faculty or maybe a really good faculty member, how, how do you, what might be a way to, to start the, to start the process or to, or to kind of hit the middle, you know, when you know that you have, you still have governance restrictions, um, but you know, change needs to happen and it's already overdue. How may you start if you're in that space? Well, that's a great question. And, and we could, we could do a whole uh, podcast talking about yes. the, the politics of, of leading an institution through change that has, uh, uh, you know, legacy structures that are designed to not, they're not designed negatively. There was a time when those structures uh, served a purpose, but increasingly they don't, particularly in this day and age. There's two pieces, there's two sides to, and I'll be very simplistic. It's much more complicated, as you know. Oh, yeah. There's two sides of it. One is there is no steady as she goes in any university anywhere in the country. You're either growing and embracing these tools and reaching students or you're dying. And, and every faculty member in the country, uh, whether they want to admit it or not, knows that, that higher ed's in trouble, that there are a lot of schools that are floundering and are going to continue to flounder. Uh, and it's because they're not adapting to the changing uh, needs of students, not because of some demographic downturn. Oh, you know, we're down in students because the, you know, the number of high school students graduating has gone down. Let, let me say this. The education market is one of the most vibrant uh, robust markets in the United States. There are 46 and a half million Americans over the age of 25 with some college credit and no degree and need education to move on in their career. 46.5 million. Okay. There are literally millions of students that are uh, 18 year olds who are, are denied access and opportunity to universities for a whole host of reasons we talked about before. So the market is robust. So the, the, the negative, the part of the argument with faculty is, look, gang, if we don't move into these areas, it, it, this, this thing is going to be over. Okay, that's the negative side. You got to use that kind of argument delicately and, and so forth. The positive side, though, the, which I prefer and the one is that is that as we move into these areas, we have the opportunity to reach many more students. We have the opportunity to educate more nurses, which is desperately needed today. We have the opportunity to educate more students in, in the health professions and business and, and the liberal arts. We have the opportunity to make a huge difference. And I, I, most of the faculty that I've encountered in my career as an administrator and as a colleague want to educate students and they want students to be successful. And so I think it's a, it's a combination of those arguments, but it's also this, everybody wants to be part of a winning team. I, I don't care who it is, you wanna be part of a winning team. So as you experiment and pilot things with other faculty and they see success there, right? It's sort of like, I think I wanna be a part of that. And so it's also kind of creating an energy. I call it a locus of positive energy that draws people in and brings them in to this. And, and I think persuasion in that way is a, is a healthy thing. But again, it's not form a committee and wait until you reach consensus. I wrote in my book, Pivot, that consensus you know, is, a, is, is, is the way, the argument about consensus is the way universities and other entities uh, thwart change. Oh, we can't do anything until everybody agrees. Nobody, everybody's not going to agree on anything. The only thing, the only thing that faculty and staff agree on at any university is you need more parking. That's the only thing they agree on. There Truth. And better coffee. Yeah, and better coffee. That that's it. That's it. And so, yeah. so you you know, going for consensus is a fool's errand. What you have to do is experiment, try things, show people what it can do, and then say to them, "Hey, the water's warm. Come join us, and mm -hmm. we'll we'll invest in you." And 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 that and and by the way, that that strategy does require some patience, but it also requires courage because you have to. When when we made the decision to go one to one with Apple in 2014, 
we made that decision at the senior level. We didn't ask. And then we brought a group of faculty and staff together and we said, we're going to implement this, design a plan for implementation. This was in August. And I said, we need the plan by December one. And they said, it's impossible. It's going to take us a year, year and a half. I said, no, you don't understand. You've got all the time you need between now and December one. And they resisted it. And then they finally said, okay, we'll give it a shot. And they submitted an operation plan on October 15th. Mm -hmm. And then we started implementing it in December. And by the next fall, we were deploying iPads to the entire first year class. So the other thing we do, and it's a very simple strategy, okay, and but I, I think it's, I've told presidents and provosts this for, for years, but, it, but employ it, it'll work. You don't, you bring a group of faculty together, you don't tell them how you want the plan. You say, look, create it. We trust you, create it. But here's the time frame, and the time frame is non-negotiable. Not, not the content, the time frame. And you'd be shocked at how amazed many of them are when they realize they can put they can, they can work quickly they can work I, t- I told a group of faculty one time when they were complaining about the time frame i said wait a minute we bring students into a class and we say you have eight or 10 or 16 weeks to complete the work right and we and if you can't complete the work you don't pass the, we we apply that standard to students why don't we apply it to ourselves I mean, why don't we model what we're applying Boom. to our students? Mm-hmm. We don't. There it is. You don't. You don't sign up for chemistry 101, and the professor doesn't say, "Hey, take the next three years till you can figure it out." We don't do that. Mm-hmm. Why would we? Why we don't do that with them? Why would we allow ourselves that luxury? Yeah, I always say that with the, with uh, with the recruiting piece too. If you're the expectation for students that we have to wait they have to wait for anything is a higher ed expectation. It's not an expectation of any other industry, including banking. I mean, you're not going to wait for your money. So they make it very easy for you to access your money and all the securities around it, but it's way easier sometimes in navigating an entry process for higher education. It's, it blows my mind. I know. Um, by the way, you did say the water's warm. Come on in. And it's warm here at the Edip Experience. I just thought that would be a good transition to get to the last two questions. Um, Mark, we ask, uh, by the way, your insights are incredible. We ask our guests the same two ending questions of every episode. Number one, my friend, what did we miss about Maryville University? What do you want to say about it? Anything you want to plug, your book, your podcast, your upcoming events at the university, hint, 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 hint. Anything you want to plug, take a couple minutes and plug away. And two, most importantly, what do you see as the future of higher education? Well, the thing that I would say we probably missed about Maryville is, again, when I came here 15 years ago, this institution had a, a, a student-centric culture it wasn't digitally oriented, but in terms of human oriented, you know, people here always talk about Maryville Nice, that it's a community that rallies around each other, supports each other. It's incredibly charitable. It's incredibly tight knit in a way, in a, in a good way. And, and what we've done in addition to all the things we talked about digitally, it, but at that time, it wasn't uh, an institution that was particularly diverse. And what we've done in the last 15 years is make huge efforts in the diversity, equity, inclusion area to greatly expand in terms of student body, faculty, staff, and leadership. We're not there yet. No institution is. No community is. The United States, all of us have a lot more work to do, but we very, very proud of that work and that that engagement with communities of color and underrepresented communities because access and opportunity using digital tools, it's about students who've been closed out students, adults who've been closed out of education having access and opportunity. And that's one of the things that I'm most proud of this institution is we've really made a huge difference in St. Louis and beyond, and we're gonna to continue to do so. That commitment is, is strong and ongoing. The future of higher ed, I, I will say before the end of this decade, uh, students are gonna be accessing their education on multiple platforms not just a question of on-ground online, but a whole mixture of platforms. It's going to be AI-based and da- and obviously loaded, as I mentioned, with, with student data, uh, building student data being the center around which that education is built. It's going to be uh, accessed 
by students of all types on a subscription model, not unlike your cell phone bill or Netflix. Uh, you won't be paying 30, 40, 50,000 a year. You'll be paying maybe 50, 100, $200 a month. But here's the difference. You'll be paying that for your whole life. Not, not because you're contracted to do it. You're going to be accessing lifelong learning because you're going to need it. Everybody's going to need to upscale every two, three, four years in careers. Why, why get it, spend a lot of money to get a degree, go into a profession, and then five years later, you got to go back and get another degree and then go back and get another degree. Why not have access to that upskilling on a consistent basis? Just like, again, and I'm not trying to be flipping here, just like your, your Netflix uh, app or your other accounts where Amazon, where you have a steady stream. And by the way, all these things are pushed out. So you, let's say you're an accountant and you're going to have to upskill in the next couple of years. Maryville will be pushing out to you all the ways that you can develop and get those upskilling through Maryville or other sources and make learning what it always should have been lifelong and accessible and not exclusionary from a price standpoint, because uh, the business model of higher ed is fundamentally broken and needs to be changed. And this is an area that Maryville is really moving into rapidly uh, in, in a lot of ways that I can't talk about right now, but I'll be able to talk about a little bit down the road. Do you think you'd talk about them first here on the Edip Experience or on the Disruptor in Chief podcast? Just just want to clarify. I don't know. It depends. I uh, We haven't really strategized about that yet. But, but Maybe a co-branded release on both platforms. You never know. You never know. It's always possible. Well, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I would tell you this has been an incredible episode of the Edip Experience, the amount of insight that we have all gained from a trailblazer, Dr. Mark Lombardi. But first, before I let him go, I have to thank my guest co-host today, um, Dr. Emily Barnes. Oh, that's the wrong one, Emily. This mm -hmm. one. Dr. Emily Barnes. She's provost at Clear University and a good sport. Um, and thank you for your first co-hosting episode here, Emily. You're Hi. a guest, now co-host. And it was with Mark. Thank you for being here for it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm not going to applause Mark. He, I feel like he gets enough applauses. I've got to let him go in this way. Dr. Mark Lombardi, he's president of Maryville University. Oh, 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 yeah. Yes, sir. There he is. Mark, it's been an honor to have you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I enjoyed it. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, you've just ed upped. The Lead Squared integrated CRM functionality will put your institution at the front end of marketing and enrollment strategy by delivering a streamlined admissions process. Capture student interest, segment your audience, create student engagement workflows, and even integrate with your student information system to create longitudinal key performance metrics you've always wanted. You can do all of this and lower your technology costs. Check out leadsquared.com for more info.